Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest co-host, Eddie... Eddie. Plural, yes. (laughs) It's a different one, so okay. We want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, thar, social medias. One of these days we're going to do this after, not before we get into it. that's silly because then they won't be able to know in the beginning of the episode because they end up shutting it off after the interview's done. Hmm... You're not you're not there when they're listening. Go ahead. Anyway, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash <laughs> Marvelous. He had to laugh through the I was, whole thing. I was driving down a field of of stuff. A field of dreams. Exactly. If you build it, they will come. I love Big Kev. Anyway, go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelous. Give us a follow on there. Find us individually on social media. I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. Ease his pain. On Twitter and what? Go the distance. Anyway, Facebook or Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick on TikTok for some God knows reason at Peter Melnick, but better. And then also you can only find Eddie Wilson on one social media platform, and that is on <laughs> Instagram. I wanted to do my best uh, Cesar Romero. Ooh, Cesar Romero. That sucked. Anyway, at Cue the Hoover. Eddie, 9193. You can also find this show on a wide variety of streaming platforms. Tune in Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, etc., etc. But the big one, Spotify. Find us wherever you can wrangle an RSS feed and lasso them onto your iOS and Android devices. We're also on iTunes where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share. Never sunny. <laughs> you can find us on there. Wow. Be sure to five-star. Keep it five-star. Keep it 100. Keep it five-star. Keep it real. Exactly. But remember... Four stars or below is Keep like the together. ice cream machine at McDonald's. <laughs> it's four stars or below, ain't going to do it. Yes. It's just don't work. Good enough. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash... The Marvelous. <laughs> I like keeping you on your toes with that one. I'm sitting down. Thank you. <laughs> Eddie, dad joke. Wilson. As are you. Yeah, well, well, my foot's positioned up. But on patreon.com, and there are three tiers... One of which has been occupied by one of the people on the other end of the tin cannon string, but we will get to them in a moment. For $3 a month, you get early access to episodes a couple days or even a day before the episode drops on the main iTunes RSS feed. You can also get a little nifty newsletter from each of us at The Marvelous, Eddie, myself, and our audio engineer, John. Neato. I mean nifty, yes. Or a neato torpedo. You can also go for the $5 tier, where for $5 you get Fantastic Voyage, our exploration of the 102 issues of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four, as well as everything in the previous tier. And... What, there's more? For $8 a month, you get to join one of two people, one of which, like I said, is on the other end of the tin cannon string, where you're able to pick an episode topic for the month as well as the possibility, if you don't suck, to guest host on this show. And guess what? The person on the other end of... See? It's a phone! Just call it like it is. No, because I like having a shtick. No, no. Go and... I got your shtick over here. (laughs) You still won't like it. Wet inside the head. But anyway, I digress. Me too, this time. This person on the other end of the tin cannon string does not suck as a guest co-host, because he is... Jacked up Jeremy Bagley. Jeremy, good evening. Good evening, Edward, and good evening... What's the other guy's name? Peter? (laughs) It's Clyde, actually. That's it. (laughs) I just wanted to thank you guys for the opportunity to be here. Uh, The other guest host is uh, far more important than I am, so I do appreciate the uh, time. And I just wanted to thank you both. You're now my second favorite monthly online subscription service after Blue Chew. Yes! They sponsored this one, too, right? No, I wish. But, man, oh, man, oh. I would make so many giant man jokes. Well, just to clarify, regardless of what you hear on the other end of the line, I don't mix and match these two sponsorships together. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, Eddie, 
and yes. Jeremy yes. on the other end of the other end of the tin can and string. We're here. But also on the other end of the other end of the tin can and string, it is going all the way over to the best coast, Los Angeles, California. We are joined with television producer, wrestling promoter, David Marquez. David, good afternoon. Howdy, fellas. Good. I'm glad he crossed the time zone correctly for you. <laughs> oh. Okay, now what? David, <laughs> tell the people at home a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm about six feet tall, maybe six one. Uh, Puerto Rican, born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, been around the world more times than I care to share. Um, majority of that with the, is with Disney, uh, I, with pro wrestling and Disney. Uh, the Walt Disney Company sent me many places. Um, and uh, I've been producing television, movies, uh, wrestling now for about 30 years. Um, and uh, some people like it, some people don't. And the public still allows me to do this, so I guess I'm doing okay. And I'm going to Joe Franklin this right off the bat, but you had mentioned off mic that there is something coming up very soon. What is it? Uh, it's quite possibly... One of the biggest uh, productions that I've jumped into myself, uh, myself, uh, my, my, my company's called the United Wrestling Network, or Championship Wrestling from Hollywood, uh, is more commonly known as. Uh, I was an owner in the National Wrestling Alliance for many, many years, since the mid-90s until about eight, nine years ago. I lost it in a lawsuit with a group of people. Uh, then that person owned it for a little while, and then he couldn't handle it anymore. And I heard about it, and I contacted my friends David Logana and Billy Corrigan, who just exited TNA Wrestling, or Impact Wrestling, and uh, told them it was for sale. And now Billy Corrigan owns the National Wrestling Alliance, and he is my business partner on this endeavor. It is a weekly pay-per-view, 90 minutes, Tuesday nights, premiering on the 15th of September uh, across uh, fight, uh, the Fight app and in-demand pay-per-view, traditional pay-per-view television um, and uh, the show is going to be anchored around the NWA and United Wrestling Network championships. But the best part about it, I feel, is that it's a weekly all-star show. Um, they don't have to be affiliated with any promotion. New Japan Pro Wrestling will be involved. West Coast Pro Wrestling up from San Francisco. Uh, most likely freelance uh, wrestling in Chicago and uh, people from all over the country and hopefully the world when we're allowed to play with the world again uh, will be featured on this program. So 90 minutes, Tuesday nights, uh, every week, live, not tape delayed, anything like that. It's 100% live, uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've done a lot of live television, a lot of big TV, but this is my, I would say, uh, outside of prior to that was producing the first wrestling broadcast from China in North America. WWE never did it. No one, no impact. It was little old me and uh, was on our syndication that we have. Uh, but this is going to be, I think, my biggest uh, production. I hope it works. Very cool. <laughs> Congratulations to you and everyone involved for that. Thank you. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different. You know, again, you had mentioned off mic, you're not much of a Marvel fan. That's fine. You're more of a distinguished competition fan, aren't you, DC, huh? Uh, no. I mean, as a kid growing up, you know, the 1966 Batman, of course, is in everybody's head. That's my age. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like Marvel growing up, it wasn't really cool, I guess. Uh, you know, I think it, in a different perspective today, people looking at camp or whatnot might look back at the Marvel films that I grew up with and TV shows and stuff. I mean, The Incredible Hulk was something on TV with Bill Bixby, but uh, outside of that, I don't know much about it. Eddie's mildly pashawing. That's okay. I was going to do a little <laughs> penguin when he did the uh, Batman. Urges. Yeah, no, of course. That was all great stuff. <laughs> yes. Especially Eddie's impression. It, well, it, was, it was okay. You know. was it, if you're going to do penguin, better wear gloves. That's true. All righty, then. We're all caught up to date now. Moving on. <laughs> so... It got me thinking, you know, I'll bet. with David's massive experience with Disney to the point where he knows what Walt Disney's office smelled like, which <laughs> I love that about you so much. What is that? Oh, I'm in the Disney office. What? <laughs> so what, what does it smell like, smell like actually? Luck, lucky strikes and pencil shavings. What? Okay. All right. Well, I can, I can 
picture both of them, but yeah. And didn't a candle recently that tried to replicate that have like vanilla or something in there? Yeah, and I got so hot over that because I wouldn't have bought van- vanilla at all. Walt wasn't a vanilla guy. No. Uh, he ate his, his staple food was like chili beans and uh, grilled cheese sandwiches. And he was a pretty regular guy. Uh, vanilla seems exotic for Walt Disney, believe it or not. <laughs> so like I said, you know, it got me thinking. Walt Disney is the Walt Disney of animation, obviously. Stan Lee is the Stan Lee of comic books. Take them both. You have Walt Simon or Walt Disney, Stan Lee. I was gonna try and mix the names together, but the synapses did not. Yo, you better believe it. But got me thinking. Mm. There's so many parallels between the two guys. The impact of both of them, you know, in comics, everything that Stan did in animation, television, and movies, everything that Walt did. We would not Mm -hmm. have the Walt Disney Company the way it is today if it was not for Walt Disney, obviously, because it's called Disney. Otherwise, it'd be, you know... Somebody else's name. Exactly. (sighs) Well, there was another Disney. There was Roy Disney, his brother, who was really the businessman behind it, uh, uh, who really made, as far as I'm concerned, modern-day entertainment. Um, So the two Disneys, absolutely. Everyone likes to forget about Roy. Roy Roy was very extremely important to the company. Yeah. So Roy, would you you would say Roy was uh, Walt's right hand man? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was his big brother too, and he took care of him like a big brother. Uh, I don't think there would ever be a, a Disney today if it weren't for Roy Disney. And when you think about it, you know, Stan Lee's right hand man was Roy the Boy Thomas. So both have Roys. Have yeah. Roy, have Roy will travel. And it's it's kind of funny seeing the like again, all these little parallels. I'm not trying to pull at straws with some of these, but then when you hear things like, "There's two Roys," that's that can't just be a coincidence. They have mustaches. Think about it. You thinking about it, Eddie? Not as much as you, <laughs> but Eddie. Well, I thought you were going to go to the, the the Stan Lee and the Walt Disney parallel thing that it was inevitable that they would be together as one. But that would be too lofty for me to impose. Okay. So what Eddie just said. <laughs> what? Now, in regards to a lot of this as well, you have the stories of, you know, the work involving Walt and, you know, his creative process. What were some of the things that, you know, were noti- were notable about Walt? Well, the stuff I've always liked about Walt is in, in its all documented too, which is fantastic, is people in Hollywood, in and around the movie business, uh, from Charlie, Charlie Chaplin to uh, you know Frank Capra, uh, even Ray Bradbury later on, and, and everyone in between, they said Walt Disney was the greatest storyteller in, in Hollywood, uh, the best story man, the best gag man. Uh, you know, in the early days of animation, when you look at Coco the Clown and uh, Felix the Cat and uh, uh, those type of characters uh, pre-1928. Um, they were all silent, and they were really just exclamation points and question marks and captions, bubble captions over their heads. Um, but Walt took it a step further, even with uh, uh, playing Crazy and Galloping Gaucho, which are the first Mickey Mouse cartoons, but they were released after Steamboat Willie because uh, the jazz singer came out and they had sound film, and Walt was like, well, no, we got to redo this whole thing in sound because it's available. So he took the, 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 the mouse character, gave him a voice, added more personality to him, and I think that's what really made Walt was that he plussed everything. He pushed everything. Um, the rubber hose animation then went from the, you know, the Mickey Mouse cartoons to the Silly Symphonies, uh, full orchestrals. Uh, in in early stereotype sound, then that went into uh, 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 color, you know, and then that's where Roy Disney comes in as a businessman, and he's like, well, hang on, if we're going to do color with these Technicolor people, we have to have the right process. So for five years, they owned the three-color Technicolor strip process. Everybody else had a different type of Technicolor, but they had the true Technicolor. Um, so pushing boundaries being the ultimate storyteller, doing, you know, the first real commercial feature-length animated film with Snow White, you know, really, really, really pushing characters, pushing, pushing personality, sticking drama and everything, 
and really having music supporting it. It wasn't just there uh, for the sake of being there. When you people still listen to Disney music from the 1920s today, and it's very contemporary when you listen to it. So uh, his process was allow his people to do what they need to do, but come in and plus it. And that was his term. He would plus it. He'd come in and say, no, do this, have this one do that. This needs to do this. And really produce and direct while having his unit animators and directors uh, uh, really fulfill those jobs. But, you know, he let them pretty much do what he knew they can do. He just guided it. He understood people. And I think the Disney parks show that, understanding America and Americana. Um, and then the world, of course, then swallowing the stuff as big as it is now. Um, it all goes back to a mouse in 1928. And, you know, with the creation of uh, Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie, there's just oh so much that can be said about that, especially, you know, that Steamboat Willie short is on par, you know, in terms of impact as so much of what, you know, was done at Marvel, you know, the Fantastic Four. It's like that if you didn't have Steamboat Willie, you would not have, you know, all of the silly symphonies. You would not have the Snow White film. You would not have Cinderella, Pinocchio, etc., etc. Sure. Much like how with you know the Fantastic Four, you wouldn't have the Hulk. You wouldn't have Spider Man. You wouldn't have the Avengers, etc. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't big on sequels either. Well, um, so when you go back and you look at things, uh, the, the filmography of the early animation going into Snow White. So he did make a sequel to the Three Little Pigs that failed. And he knew it was going to fail. Um, he wasn't really big on that, which, of course, today that's kind of a staple of entertainment, of sequels and or franchises, as they call them now. Um, so he, he really was against that. He wasn't a big fan of, of making sequels. Uh, and then when you think about his career, if you really tear it apart, so the short, short subjects went into feature animation. Feature animation then went into live-action uh, films. And then, you know, that eventually went into television, and the only reason he went into television was to use it as an infomercial to sell Disneyland to America. Um, he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and with entertainment in general, you know, the 64 World Fair in New York popped up. Uh, they invited him to do shows there, and they're really staples of, of uh, themed entertainment. So you had It's a Small World that came out of there, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, which still plays today at Disneyland. Uh, small world plays around the world. Pieces of Lincoln plays in Florida at the um, uh, the Hall of Presidents. Uh, the Carousel of Progress with General Electric, a fantastic show uh, that still plays at Walt Disney World today at the Magic Kingdom. And uh, uh, Magic Skyway was another show for Ford Motors, where pieces of that is on the railroad in Disneyland, and a lot of it was turned into the Energy Pavilion uh, at Epcot when it opened with the dinosaurs and whatnot. Um, and then audio animatronics in general is a Disney intervention, and that's all of show business now and puppetry today. So the guy just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, of course, towards the end of his life with Epcot. He was obsessed with urban planning and how to make a better city and how to make life better for people from transportation to uh, you name it, uh, that utopia, uh, idea of utopia. Um, what they ended up building, of course, in, in the 80s with uh, Epcot Center was nothing what Walt had in his mind. Uh, he was looking to do this progress city, um, and they ended up building, you know, virtually a World's Fair, which they're tearing apart now because people don't care about World's Fair. Um, <laughs> so you're getting a lot of the Pixar characters and more of a, a themed-type park uh, uh, with IP-driven attractions in Epcot and a lot of the, a lot of the parks really worldwide now. Well, then the parallel can be drawn, I think, as I'm hearing you tell me all this stuff, David, is to Walt and the theme park coming together, opening the model of it, and then you get in Iron Man with his father, Howard, and the whole oh, yeah. layout. <laughs> Anything is possible through technology. And maybe at the time we spoke about it in the movie and so on, or it was just a, a very back-in-your-head thought, like, why does this sound and look familiar? <gasps> yeah, it does. Disney! Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Now, it was a big shout-out to the 64 World's Fair and the stuff Walt did there. Uh, even, the, I think, the, I'm not sure if, if Richard Sherman came out of retirement to write the song and the jingle that goes in, in that part of the picture. But in the Carousel of Progress, it's a great big, beautiful tomorrow is the song. And um, 
I think that same idea and that same theming is in what you guys are talking about that scene. But of course, Walt walking around, uh, I think it's the Disneyland Tencennial Celebration uh, of the Wonderful World of Disney that's available, I'm pretty sure, on Disney Plus if you go look for it. I know it's on the on YouTube, but uh, it's Walt standing in, in his uh, wed uh, offices and workshops, and they're working on all the animatronics. And then there's the Epcot film that they shot in 1966 with Walt explaining to the people of Florida what Epcot is supposed to be um, and what Disney World's supposed to be. So I think that's pretty much the, the reference they used in doing that scene. Let me, before I forget, David, back up and ask this question. You said that Walt didn't want to do sequels. I can understand that. You know, one and done, it's a self-contained story. Move on to another yeah. character. That's great. You said, though, and he had that, I guess, from the beginning, all throughout. But he did make the sequel, you said, to Little Pigs? Three Little Pigs? Yeah, Three Little Pigs. And yeah. he did that. Why did he do it failed. then? The government pushed him to do it because oh. it was such a hit and such an inspiration, you know, during the Depression. That uh, Who's Afraid of a Big Bad Wolf was a became a pop song and an anthem for people th- getting through the Depression as the Depression being the Big Bad Wolf. That's yeah. why the song was kind of composed that way. Um, so it was a, it was kind of a rally cry for everybody to get out of your, you know, do your best to get through this. The wolf isn't going to knock your house down. Yeah. You know, protect it, keep moving. And so when he made the second one, it was a little more like Goldilocks-like, and it just didn't work, and the people were like, oh, didn't have the same meaning. It, this wasn't it. So... He sure. was totally against sequels. It was of the time the period. Well, I thought it was, you know, I said, first of all, I said, well, how could he, who could be telling him to make a sequel when he's a dead set against it? And the only other thought that came to mind was, well, he would make it and show people, see, it failed. I told you so. <laughs> no, he had a great relationship, too, with the government, the Roosevelt's and, and Truman and whatnot. Um, that's how you got uh, the three caballeros in uh, Sur Amigos. You know, the government sent him down to South America to do a goodwill trip, and uh, uh, he was sort of an ambassador of goodwill uh, that they sent him down there. And he, uh, you know, he came back with the culture of South America, and he made those two uh, featurettes. So uh, the government used him a couple of times. And the Disney studio during World War II uh, was protecting the West Coast. Uh, the the military took over the the, the studio and uh, put tanks and you know, bazookas or whatever to protect uh, California. Um, uh, uh, they were doing training on the lot, and Disney did a lot of war insignias on the side of airplanes um, using the Disney characters, and, and a lot of uh, uh, propaganda films and uh, uh, other safety things like uh, mosquitoes and training videos and all that kind of stuff, videos, films, <laughs> um, uh, back then. But, yeah, Walt was really big uh, into the government back then. And he was also, you know, when it comes to the uh, uh, the black, uh, yeah, uh, I can't yeah. remember now, but, but, but communism. The Hollywood blacklist. Um, yeah. How, yeah McCarthyism. Right. Right. Uh, Walt, just like everybody else at that time, went up against communism and was basically, and you can find all this footage online, it's all available, where he was talking about how they want to unionize his place and the communists are coming and they want to make a dust bowl out of his place and all that. So, unfortunately, Walt played the game just like everybody in Hollywood, and unfortunately that happened. But, yeah, he was a man of his times uh, in, in some respects, very easygoing, um, and always thought about people and, and, and what he did. Uh, Jeremy? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask David, um, you know, earlier Eddie made the uh, connection with Tony Stark and, and Howard. Um and Roy ended up obviously taking over. Uh, Walt passed away in the mid 1960s. Obviously, we talked about Lucky Strikes, the uh, smoking, a large part of that. Um, when Roy passed away, because he wasn't around too much longer, I think he passed away in the mid 1970s. Uh, I think 70, 71. Children like uh, Roy uh, E, you know, uh, Roy O's son, did they have a major influence on the company uh, at all? Because I know that. Uh, Roy E. Disney ended up, you know, living well into the 2000s, and I was just curious if the uh, the nephews and nieces, you know, helped carry on any of that legacy that uh, the, the their father and their uncle had kind of started with the company. Sure. I mean, I was lucky enough to know Roy E. Disney. Um, 
Uh, my first job ever was I was a tour guide at Disneyland, so I wore the plaid vest and walked people around. Um, uh, Walt has always been my pinup fellow since I was a kid, uh, uh, him and Roy. But, yeah, Roy E., he was on the board of directors throughout the uh, uh, late 60s while his dad was chairman of the board. Uh, but in the, uh, in the I want to say, 80, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, Walt's family still controlled an awful lot of what happened. And, and there was a, a motto from 1966 until 1984 or 83, people would say, what would Walt do? And Roy E. got to a point after his dad died in 1971 um, that we can't, we can't do that anymore. We really have to get out of this, what would Walt do? We can't work for a dead man. We can't, you know, we, we, he was not Jesus. We can't, we can't rely on and think of his notes and, you know, of what would Walt do. So he was on the board of directors. Um, he was a producer. Uh, he was at the studio starting in the 50s. Um, a lot of people don't know that. He was a film editor. And a lot of the true life adventures were produced by Roy. Um, but back then, there was only one name that was really put on those, and that was Walt. Um, and the TV shows, Davy Crockett, all that stuff, he, he worked on the TV side of things. Um, but going into the 70s, uh, where he had more influence because of stock and whatnot, he had influence. So did his cousins, uh, Walt's daughters. Uh, so Roy, or I'm sorry, uh, Diane Disney, Walt's oldest daughter, his, he, she got married to a football player um, named Ron Miller. He became the head of the studios in the early 80s. And you have to understand, in the mid to late 70s, throughout the early part of the 80s, it was a joke to say that you were either going to see a Disney movie or appear in a Disney movie. It was as Roger Corman as you can get. They, uh, it was embarrassing to Hollywood. It wasn't the brand that people consider Disney today. Uh, it was still a big business. They still put out movies. They still put out animation. But, of course, when they realized the theme parks are where the money was coming in and what people really thought of them as, they kind of, and not having a Walt type there to lead the movie side, because Roy wasn't a movie or creative person at all. Um, Roy Jr. was, but not his dad. You know, they kind of lost track of who and what they were. Um, and then probably, I think, 83, uh, there, was gonna, there was a corporate raid that was coming on to Disney. And so these people were like, uh, Marriott was considering building, uh, or I'm sorry, purchasing the, uh, the parks and then dismantling them, selling the hotels for this and selling this to this. And, and, and so Roy just got people together. He quit the board of directors uh, at a protest. The board got all huffy about it, brought him back. His, his demands were kind of like, well, you got to get rid of my you know, brother or cousin-in-law, brother-in-law, whatever this person is to me because he's not good for the company, and uh, we need to do something else. Well, he got his way, and that's how Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came in and created the modern Disney that everybody knows today. But, yeah, there, and he was influential in getting Michael Eisner kicked out about uh, almost 20 years ago. It's always so weird to realize that uh, Michael Eisner is actually partially responsible for the uh, Netflix series BoJack Horseman because of his yeah. uh, studio. <laughs> it's like so. It's so weird. He also owns Pops. Wait, what? Yeah, he bought Bazooka Joe, and he was. He was. I rem- I, I'll never forget this. It may have been on CNBC. They were interviewing him, and he was like, I, "Yeah, I just bought Pops baseball cards, and blah blah blah. I'm going to mm-hmm. make this thing as big as Mickey Mouse." And the interviewer is just like, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's it's funny though because like over the past twenty to thirty, actually about thirty something years, Disney has accumulated so much stuff in the pop culture landscape. And Disney has the Muppets. They have you know, and it's not the Jim Henson company. They own the Muppets, so it's like Kermit, Piggy, Gonzo, but not the actual company. Um. I'm correct on that, right? Yeah. Okay, and um, I'm trying to think. They have Marvel. Well, they also have, you know, they, they own the Bear of the Big Blue, Blue House, um, a lot of those series. Uh, Jim, what they don't own are Sesame Street Muppets, uh, Labyrinth. Dark Crystal. Um, Dark Crystal. Those stayed with the company. Uh, of course, uh, Children's Television Workshop or Television Workshop or whatever it's called today, um, they own the Muppet characters uh, for Sesame Street. But uh, Disney owns the... 
the Muppet world, the the, the 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 movies and TV show, the Muppet show characters. One thing I've always wondered about is um, maybe you maybe you know um, how when when in the uh, mid to late nineties after uh, Muppet Treasure Island came out in ninety six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ended up going over to Columbia TriStar and Sony Pictures mm-hmm. and did Muppets in Space. How, like, how did that even come about? Did Disney lose I, the rights? Well, no, Disney never... Uh, Jim did make a deal to for Disney to buy the Muppets in the mid-'90s. When Jim Henson died, you know, he had just finished uh, Muppet Vision 3D. And a lot of people say... That's what helped kill Jim Henson was the, the pressure to finish uh, the attraction the way Disney wanted it. Um, after he passed, uh, the family decided not to sell to Disney. Um, they also sold and I think bought the company back three different times. Uh, and one was to Hallmark. The Hallmark Channel originally was the Kermit Channel. Yeah, A lot honestly. of people don't remember that. Um, but uh, it was sold to a German licensing company. And then the family bought it back. Uh, but I want to say at that time, if you look it up, I think Cheryl Henson, uh, one of Jim's daughters, was the head of production at Columbia at that time. And I think that's how that deal happened. Yeah, because I've always wondered because I always see, uh, you know, that's obviously not going to be a Muppet movie we'll see on Disney Plus, but we will see uh, the Great Muppet Caper, uh, sure. the Muppet movie, Muppets, uh, Muppet Treasure Island, Muppet, uh, mm-hmm. what's it called, Christmas Carol. But yeah, mm-hmm. we'll never see that. We'll never see uh, Muppets from Space or uh, what's it called? The one I really, really love, Muppets Take Manhattan. Oh, we'll yeah. never see that on there. <laughs> or Buddy. <laughs> I've never seen that one. Buddy's a big ape movie, I think. It was a Jim Henson film, a Jim Henson uh, Pictures uh, release, and I think that was at Columbia as well. Was that in the nineties? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I want to say, yeah, I want to say Matthew LeBlanc starred in it. I think. Because I remember growing up as a kid, uh, we used to get the Scholastic uh, Book Fair, and I remember getting a buddy book from that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that, that's, uh, I'm pretty, I think that was a Columbia film, too. That is a memory I did not expect to uh, encounter today. <laughs> but, Eddie? <laughs> I was just thinking in terms of the other uh, properties, and, and I guess it's been released on DVD if you wanted to collect the run of uh, The Muppet Show TV. Not all of it, mm-hmm. though. Not all of it? Yeah, there's like a season that was left out or something, I think. And it's a bummer, too, because like that's the one show I'm patiently waiting to see make the jump to Disney+. And I know it, it the issue is, I would imagine, uh, copyrights with uh, guests appearing on there, musical yeah. acts. Well, I don't, I don't think, I think it's the music. I think it's ASCAP BMI stuff. I don't, I think, I think that's really what's keeping it. Which is a shame because I would love to, you know, be able to watch the Alice Cooper episode or the Debbie, uh, the Debbie <laughs> Harry one, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. But, that'd be a great stuff. source of new material for you guys because, after all, you are the Statler and Waldorf of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, that was Eddie that did that. That's uh, exactly right. Don't you forget about it. And then another one. Let me know when you get started. Started. I thought you were finished. <laughs> <laughs> the one uh, property that Disney used to have that always surprises me, and they sold it, it went to Nickelodeon, was the Power Rangers. And you would think, mm-hmm. you would think they would utilize that, and nope. <laughs> I, I think part of the problem with that stuff is with IPs and them acquiring things. Like even the Muppets, they don't know what to do with. That's the truth. Which is they a have shame. Many Mupp- Mupp- Muppet type series since their purchase, and it, it, it could have gone... You have Frank Oz who's willing to work with the company, uh, and and there's people who worked with Henson who are still around and could re, who really understand those characters. Um, if I can give it a, a wrestling uh, example, it's like when Vince McMahon bought WCW and didn't understand what to do with it, or ECW and made his own version of it. It didn't work. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing. Um when they when they got uh, the Family Channel, that's how this deal happened. Saban owned a big chunk of the Family Channel, and uh, so that's how the Power Rangers ended up with Disney, and it became ABC Family, and now I think it's called uh, uh, it starts with an F. Uh, Freeform. Yes. Um. Uh. So that's how that whole thing started. Um. And uh. And so that when you don't know what to do with it, you flip it, you get rid of it, and. 
and at the time, you know, the Power Rangers are not, it, it has a big nostalgic feel, but it's not those executives' decisions that made it big. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it, it happens again and again, too, when, like, you got Star Wars as a, an example. You know, you have George Lucas sitting there, whether that's good or bad, but <laughs> the guy is there, and, you know, you don't necessarily consult with him. You just make these films, it's like, well, people are going to consume it, and it's going to be fantastic. Until the people look at it, it's like no. This <laughs> All movie you're doing needs... is throwing a bunch of Jar Jar Binks at us. No, this movie needs more Sabalba. <laughs> but so Disney has a real big problem with that. They they when they get when they acquire something, they really don't know what to do with it. Um, and I have a problem with that too. The the buying of creative instead of being creative. Walt's creativity going into the seventies with his guys. They were innovative, they were top shelf, everything was virtually fresh. You get into the 90s and 2000s, and now they're acquiring things that are successful in pop culture and IP, and then you don't know it, you don't understand it, and then there's nothing new being created. Now, Disney's in this thing now of uh, remaking the animated uh, features into live action features, I'm seeing online, you know, the new Mulan. People are so upset over it, and I don't know why I've not seen it yet. Because it's $30 uh, to make, buy. What, what's that? It's $30 to buy on your Disney Plus account. Like, you have to you have... No, I, I don't have a problem with that. I did when you my friend charged me accidentally for it. I'll tell you that story later, well, Eddie. <laughs> well, you better whoop him then for that. Oh, um, but, oh. Uh, <laughs> But but I'm just saying if you're in, if you're at someone's they're looking at it as like a family of four or a family of five they're sitting in their living room or around their computer or something and they're watching this and it's ten bucks a head I get it yeah I mean my my thing is I'm but but the but the film itself which I've not seen you know there's no Mushu there's no cricket there's no uh, uh, Grandma Willow or anything you know she has magic powers apparently. <laughs> um, and, and and older fans who liked it when they were children, who are now adults and have their own children, you know, they get upset over it. And uh, and I'm reading all these comments about this. So this film can't be this bad. <laughs> I see. I didn't see Mulan until maybe 2017, and mm. they did like a theatrical re-release one random weekend. And so I'm like, oh, I'll give it a shot. So I'm like, wow, I liked it. But it's like it's not. I one think of it's the... a good movie. Yeah. It has Donny Osmond. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's the senior. To your point, David, too, um, you know, if you think about recent releases, and let's just call recent the last 20 years, uh, you can put some milestones out there for Disney as far as, like, um, in the 90s with that resurgence with The Lion King and um, The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. They don't have a tentpole like that, like you said, that isn't something that they've tried to recreate as a, a live-action thing. and. Most of their stuff has been Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar. Do you think mm-hmm. that degrades the brand a little bit? Because we talked about brand synergy earlier, bringing in things that don't necessarily mesh with you. And while Star Wars and, and Marvel and I don't Pixar so, are going to mesh because... with everybody, because at the end of the day you're going to see those franchises regardless of who owns them, do you think Disney's maybe degraded their brand a little bit going forward into the future that they're not going to be associated with younger people with these tentpole projects anymore, or at least not original ones? I don't think so, because I think there's so many lines of businesses, how they grab people now on the Disney Channel, you know, or right. you have Disney Junior. So they grab kids at a certain age, and maybe they'll come up with a Peter Parker show where he's three years old. You know, they, they, they have that opportunity to do that. Uncle Ben, um, nothing will happen to you. <laughs> Um, and um, you know so I don't think so and they're looking from a Wall Street perspective as long as their portfolio is robust and they're always doing things and they're always looking like they're moving somewhere it's it's not going to hurt them Um, I just feel that the entertainment is diluted because there's so much of it Uh, Pixar as an example Um, when you look from an animation perspective in my opinion when you look at Frozen, uh, which is pretty uh, uh, much in the in the princess fairy tale world of Disney, uh, it's a home run because all the elements are working in that Little Mermaid, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White vein. Um, songs are right, characters are right, the vibe is right. 
the story is quote unquote right, even though it's not PC today for a female character to wish for a bow when this man is going to take care of her and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's why she was independent and she was she could freeze things, <laughs> which I don't know is a double entendre or not, but it was funny to me. Um, <laughs> being this frigid girl, woman, queen, princess, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, <clears throat> when you look at the Pixar stuff that also came out at that time, so Pixar was kind of lost too. So you get the dinosaur movie that nobody understands. Um, uh, and, a, and a couple other pictures there that weren't up there. Wally was is fantastic. It's Pixar's Bambi, if you ask me. A great, great movie. Um, I can but, see that. Yeah, but from a <clears throat> from a, a an animation point of view and entertainment, a lot of elements are now missing and becoming more uh, saturated over as the years go on. So you watch these Pixar movies, which are full of fart jokes and like non Disney type things, and I don't understand why you have to do stuff like that to create entertainment to get a laugh or to, like there's other ways to get a laugh. The Marx Brothers never did any of that stuff, and again, people are still watching them and enjoying them all these decades later. And the side so, duck soup is a masterpiece. That... Yeah, there you go. But uh, but but that, that's my rant when I start on the on the stump when it comes to just mainstream anything. Just and you could even talk about Warner Brothers. You can't recreate Bugs Bunny, and they tried many times. It worked with Tiny Toons, but it wasn't Bugs Bunny. That was a whole new crop of characters. And the, the HBO Max version of it that just came out, they tried so desperately to create the Tex Avery world of, of exaggerated animation with a modern uh, a twist with the animation. There, there was the Bugs Bunny Daffy show, for, uh, I think Cartoon Network, that there was the odd couple. And it, it, it's like you, you can't do that. People know who these characters are. They know their traits. They enjoy the jokes. If Carol Burnett came back and did the Carol Burnett show the way that she did it then, it, I think it would be a hit. Unfortunately, I think there'd be too many fingers in there to mess it up, and it wouldn't be the Carol Burnett show. Would she still be pulling her ear? Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned... Tarzan for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned that, you know, your stance with that with the animation. That's me with Star Wars, where I'm fine with almost all of the decisions they've made for the most part because I also realize Star Wars isn't for me anymore. It never, like, the the Holy Trilogy and maybe part of the prequels, they were, you know, what I was growing up with. But I go to a movie like The Force Awakens, which I liked. I go to a movie like The Last Jedi, which, hot take apparently, I liked. And then The Last, uh, what's, Rise of Skywalker. Eh. But... With these movies, they would incorporate things like random, like certain kinds of jokes that I could never hear in the original trilogy or even the prequels. Like when you have a character yep. like Poe Dameron going on making a your mom joke, it doesn't feel right. It just it yep. feels there is that that level of interference, and it just it took me out of a movie that had a walking carpet. Think about that for a second. <laughs> sure. Like, I'm in disbelief. Like, the, the laser swords, I'm fine with. But a your mom joke in a galaxy far, far away, I'm like, no. Yeah. It, it, no, it's bad. And, like, you know, when they did the new Mickey Mouse shorts for the Disney Channel and the newer style uh, of, of animation where the characters and, like, Goofy looks like he's on crack or whatever, <laughs> um, they, you know, I started hearing Mickey not being Mickey Mouse. And they made him way too want to be Vogue and the you know Mickey is supposed to be uh, uh, bland <laughs> you know yeah. he's supposed to be this this little he's supposed to be that and you surround him in a situation where he gets out just like the Tramp uh, Charlie Chaplin you know he did incredible things and didn't say a word. Um, and and you can still do that today. Like I, I just hate the fact that they feel they need to bend down to kids because kids don't know anything. You know, if you if you if you play something for a child, it, it's going to take them a long time to dislike it. And the reason they're going to most likely dislike it is because their parents dislike it. Right. 
And, and, and that's just because of boredom or thinking they're too old to enjoy it or whatever. Uh, it doesn't really happen to, to, to be the actual product. Um, just not in their world. They don't have time for it. or they don't. They, like even Sesame Street. I, I caught Sesame Street for the first time in years uh, about two weeks ago. And it's on HBO, which I didn't know it was on HBO originally. Uh, HBO gets it first, then PBS gets it. Yeah, I think um, like six to eight months later. Wow. Yeah, and it's and it's it's so different in their parodies. It's like Saturday Night Live versus it being an educational show. And I'm watching this thing, and 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 it's great that they incorporate a lot of our society today with trans muppets and autistic muppets and uh, biracial muppets. That I think that's fantastic. It's just the scenarios they put them in. It's like these aren't real world scenarios, like. Uh, you know, the little animation of the girl going to the store for her mom to get the bottle of milk, the stick of butter, and the bread, you know, and yeah. make sure you remember those three things, and here's 75 cents for all this, and come back with what you went for. I, I, I don't see the lessons that are being taught, and it just, it's, it's troubling, first and foremost, but two, it really takes away from what I know these characters to be. Um, kids, of course, they don't know that, and so they're influencing them in a different way. But they're not out there trying to teach civics, or they're not out there trying to teach, uh, you know, this is why you need to be a good person, or share your cookies, or, or whatever the, the, the situation might be. Well, the number eight. Um, the number eight, there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, or See, even figure eight, if you want to talk schoolhouse yeah. rock. Um, my, but, uh, my, go, go my go-to for this is uh, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, sure. ten, <laughs> eleven, twelve. Yeah, or the, or the, or the ladybug picnic. Um but, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just, again, you can't live in nostalgia, but you can repurpose the lesson for today's audience. And I don't think that we are as sophisticated as the studios or corporations want to say we are. And also, by... think, oh, go ahead. I think, too, to your point, David, and I think you made a really good one, as somebody who looks for diversity in content, like I like seeing LGBT characters. Um, I like it when the main hero is something that, you know, somebody who couldn't normally identify with superheroes before gets a chance to. I think mm -hmm. one of my things is, is that, with, and again, with Disney, with, with Star Wars, with, with Marvel, there's been this kind of knee-jerk reaction to say, all right, we need to have diversity in our characters. So let's take a character that used to be white and make them gay or black. Yeah or Asian or Hispanic, yep, yep. coming from that community, to me, that is kind of a, is more lip service than it is. Why not create new characters that are those things? That, that's part of the story of who they are and not have to retcon a character that's already got a history. You know, um, I think to your point of, of having those characters in there but not having them have the same purpose is, is right in line with that, where it's like, all right, we've made sure that we've got a gay one now and we've made sure that we've got, you know, this ethnic variable one now, where you could give those characters more meaning in their diversity by giving them their own canon and giving them their own experiences and, and their own, you know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here, whether it's Disney or Marvel or pro wrestling, we're talking about mythology and we're talking about mm -hmm. a legend. And I think giving diverse characters their own history and legend, it, it does more of a service to the community you're trying to reach out to than retconning characters or shoehorning them in without having them, like you said before, do what they used to be able to do for society. Yeah, no, I agree with that for sure. I think a, a part of the reason of what you, you just mentioned has to do with buzz So, and the publicity side of it. And uh, if, if you can get some words out there about this character is now gay or this, you know, transgender or something, it's, it has to do with getting some headlines out of it. Um, uh, unfortunately, which there shouldn't have to be headlines uh, over that kind of stuff. It happens every day in households all over the world. People discover this stuff, so it shouldn't be sensationalized. Um, uh, spotlight's great to be put on, but, you know, not every character <laughs> in, in a family on a sitcom, you know, needs to come, needs to come out or needs to this or needs to that. Not, I don't think right. you need that. Um, and, uh, you know, we were talking about sequels earlier. Something that kind of troubles me, too, is... Uh, when you when you see a remake of a movie and uh, the, the fandoms everywhere 
get so bent out of shape over a remake. Um, but then you look at Broadway, and they have revivals yearly, and they all do fantastic because they want to see this performer on Broadway. You know, how do they... How are they Mama Rose, you know, and Gypsy? Or how are they this or how are they that? Who's going to play the music man and how are they going to make a move that? It's the end of the world using those characters that you know are successful shows that have toured the country, if not the world, companies. You know, A Star is Born has done a, what, I think there's been seven or eight of those, and they've all been different. Um, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but I know it's a high number. The new um, one was pretty but, good. Though. Uh, 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 but 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 that's something that has always troubled me. And even in wrestling, like when you have generational characters uh, that go back to the fifties or the four, or, or the sixties, where the Rhodes family or the Funks or whoever, as you come forward and you start inventing new characters, because wrestling today you can't just live in the moment of watching a wrestling match or being stuck in the story. You know, you have to know the back. The, 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 the person playing the character that is a Funk or an Anderson or, you know, Carl Machine Gun Anderson is not a real Anderson. Well, neither was Lars and neither was Gene and neither was Ole. And neither, they weren't Andersons. They were from all over the country. They put them together and you believed it. So it, those little things from being creative and trying to create something new really bothers me when the public has to dig into it so deep and not just enjoy the entertainment for what it is. So now, gentlemen, I think we are going to put a bow on this episode. I want to say, first off, thank you both for doing the show today. You got it. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't bore you. No, no, no. Absolutely. No. I need to keep giving you guys money every month because <laughs> you look on their social media, you got Peter, who's melting in front of us. The guy's losing so much weight that I'm worried that Sally Struthers is going to start making commercials for him. Oh, sure. And then you got Eddie running around the cemetery doing God knows what. So <laughs> I'm going to keep the cash coming to you guys, and then that way we can we can keep you guys above board, and authorities don't need to be called. Oh, that's good. So appreciate that. So why are you in the graveyard, Eddie? <laughs> it's cool. Pictures, man. Spirit is with me. He's a Paul Bearer fan. Oh, yes! Oh, yes! Oh, my Undertaker! <laughs> I saw... I missed him. That was very I good. I will tell you... That. That's very good. A very good Paul Bearer cosplayer at last year's November Super Mega Fest. Oh, sorry. I'm stepping on your foot, Eddie. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Oh, I love how it was just like three Paul Bearer impressions at <laughs> once. Wow. You couldn't tell who was who, and that's a good thing. No, who was Jim Neidhart? Who is? That was actually my regular voice. I just dipped into that blue shoe we were talking about earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I call... prefer Percy Pringle anyway. <laughs> oh, man. So before we go, how can... Okay, guys. Well, how can people get a hold of you, David, on social media? Me? Uh, well, to learn more about what I do, you can go to HollywoodWrestling.com. Perfect, because I, I said you can find me at your local library. <laughs> And uh, Captain O.G. Readmore, huh? Yes. Um, but uh, or, or Pretty Peter Avalon, or I'm sorry, the librarian Peter Avalon. That is true. Uh, you could also, uh, uh, the NWA is nationalwrestlingalliance.com. All right. Okay. Your social media handles? Oh, mine is at C-W-F-H Marquez, M-A-R-Q-U-E-Z. If you uh, look me up on, that's uh, really a personal page and a lot of personal opinions. So if you're a fan of what I do on camera, that's probably not a place for you. More buddies on Facebook. I appreciate it. <laughs> I don't think you're friends with Jeremy yet. You should be. Jeremy's a good guy. And speaking of Jeremy, Jeremy, how can people you get a hold of you? You can get a hold of me on Twitter with my literally dozens of followers at uh, Jacked Up Jeremy, um, a nice handle that Mr. Jim Cornette bestowed upon me. So, uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. And I just wanted to say, you know, personally... You know, it's been a real pleasure to be on this episode with David. I am a big fan of the partnership with the NWA and uh, the United Wrestling Network. I'm looking forward to watching it. It's going to be on Fight TV, right? Did we lose him? We lost David. All right, folks. So it's going to be on Fight TV starting <laughs> Tuesday, September 15th at 9 p.m. Anyway, for the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jeremy Bagley. He was David Marquez. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel, this time 
with Jeremy Bagley returning. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Uh, I t- just talked to uh, to Dave Marquez on uh, on the uh, Facebook Messenger, and he said, uh, "You guys piss off." What? No, I'm just kidding. Better off than on, I think, though, right? <laughs> Isn't that how that saying goes? That is. Okay, good. Question number nine five nine. Armbar. It's my radio job frequency, you ding-dong. Nope, armbar. Who or what is Ultimo? A gigantic robot that serves the Mandarin, the Red Skull's fourth sleeper, an alien robot also known as the Colossus, or an evil robot created by Henry Pym. Ooh, I think I have this. I do, I have the book. Uh, Who or what is Ultimo? A gigantic robot that serves the Mandarin, the Red Skull's fourth sleeper, an alien robot also known as the Colossus, or an evil robot created by Henry Pym. I think it's uh, the fourth sleeper. I think it's this big giant robot that comes out of the ground. Okay. Peter? I'm going to go with Jeremy on that. I'm going to say D, evil robot by Henry Pym. And um, I'll probably be wrong. Letter D is wrong. It is letter A, gigantic robot that serves the Mandarin. Ha-ha. Ooh-hoo. Hee-hee. I love that robot, but then 20 minutes later, you just want to see it serve the Mandarin again. (laughs) Wait a minute. Yeah, no, 20 minutes. Um, 872, moving right along. That's a Muppet song. That's a bear and a Studebaker. (sighs) Move right along. Which high government position has Tony Stark held? Is it Secretary of Commerce, National Security Advisor, Secretary of Defense, or Vice President? Which high government position has Tony Stark held? Secretary of Commerce, National Security Advisor, Secretary of Defense, or Vice President? I'm between. I'm going to go with National Security Advisor. That was one of my thoughts. I think that was the uh, Matt Fraction run. Late 2000s. And I'm thinking Secretary of Defense. Was there an Iron Man sub... uh, Maybe it was a regular... Issue run that it had a subtitle of no wait a minute maybe it was director of shield that's that what was. I'm thinking of okay I'm gonna stick with you guys and I was gonna go say secretary of defense but let's try security advisor letter B no the secretary. my Eddie sense was right secretary of defense Dang, damn it your Eddie sense was he doesn't right make defenses he makes armor <laughs> okay where did that logic go apparently out the window he re- he retired from hip hop Eddie. Do- <clears throat> Two, four, seven. Come on down. The next contestant on. The answer is wrong. What ability did the Miracle Man, who fought the Fantastic Four in their third issue, possess? Wow, this could be a freshly read thing here. Not for Uh, me because I don't read it till next month. Okay, superhuman hypnotic powers, the ability to summon and control monsters, real magic, or mind over matter powers. What ability did the Miracle Man, who fought the Fantastic Four in their third issue, possess? Superhuman hypnotic powers, the ability to summon and control monsters, real magic, or mind-over-matter powers? I'll go with D. Mind-over-matter, okay. I think it's hypnotic. I, I was thinking hypnotic myself. I didn't read the whole Ooh. the whole issue uh, again recently, but uh, all right, let's try A, superhuman hypnotic powers is correct. Well, hey. now, that's one for three as far as us, we three are concerned. We have to do four. I, I don't know why, but we do. Redemption, perhaps. Hypnotic, also not a bad uh, grapefruit liqueur. All you sponsors out there, you got to be listening to these free plugs. The first sentence oh. of money, the marvelous way. Tell you what, Jeremy, these free plugs are killing me. <laughs> the session the same one again every single time. Okay, I just went past it. 1611. It is what, I'm sorry, who was the mysterious assassin in writer Steve Gerber's run on The Defenders? Who was the mysterious assassin? Richard Ryder, an elf with a gun. Yep, one of the gun. One of the bozos or the fool killer? The mysterious assassin in writer Steve Gerber's run on The Defenders. Again, Richard Ryder, an elf with a gun, one of the bozos or the fool killer. It's elf with a gun. It's elf with a gun mm-hmm. because you know that yep. run. Perhaps mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. But it's, why why put Richard Ryder in there? AKA Nova. 
But okay. I just like the visual of an elf with a gun. It's I, a pretty. It is pretty funny to see. And he like gets. Are yeah, we talking up, like, about the one that goes after and tries to eat cats from Melmac? No, that's Alf. Oh, Alf. Hey, Willie, yo! <laughs> Letter B, Elf with a gun, is correct. Thank goodness we got two for four. Thank you. I'm to get you in the Hall of Fame. Standing in the Hall of Fame. <laughs>